This morning we begin our look through the book of Kings. I'll just commonly refer to the book of Kings as the book of Kings. We have it divided up into books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings that is most likely simply because it was too long to fit on one scroll, so they cut it in half and put it on two scrolls. One is 1 Kings and one is 2 Kings. So when I refer simply to the book of Kings, you'll know now that I refer to the, the entirety of the work. And we begin here in the book of 1 Kings, and we'll look at 1 Kings chapter 1. Before we do, let's pray together. Gracious God, we love your word. And we find you in your word, and we find our identity in Christ in your word. We see the story of your people in your word, and we see that it is our story as well. So we pray that you would teach us, and that you would train us for righteousness this morning from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 1. When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his servant said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Rai, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah who were royal officials, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king without our Lord David's knowing? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and confirm what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed low and knelt before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me your servant by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons. Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his fathers, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived, and they told the king, Nathan the prophet is here, so he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. 
Nathan said, Have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you, and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low with her face to the ground and, and kneeling before the king said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's, your Lord's servants with you, and set Solomon my son on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and put Solomon on King David's mule and escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing flutes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asked, What's the meaning of all the noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar the priest, arrived. Adonijah said, Come in. A worthy man like you must be bringing good news. Not at all, Jonathan answered. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites, and they have put him on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. From there they have gone up cheering, and the city resounds with it. That's the noise you hear. Moreover, Solomon has taken his seat in the royal throne. Also the royal officials have come to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, may, God, may your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours, and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see his successor on my throne today. At this, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be a worthy man, 
not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men, and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon, and Solomon said, Go to your home. The book of Kings, like all 66 books in the scriptures, is ultimately about Jesus. It's easy to look at books like Kings or Deuteronomy and wonder what in the world this could possibly have to do with ourselves or with Christ. But we should remember that when Jesus was walking the earth in his earthly ministry, that there was no New Testament, that the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. And then when Jesus is debating and arguing with the Jewish leaders, we read this from his, from his lips in John 5. He says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So when Jesus says to them, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, he's not talking about Paul's letters or the Gospels or the book of James. Paul and James were still in positions of opposition to Jesus when he says this. He's speaking about the Old Testament when he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And so we read the book of Kings from the outset, recognizing that it is a book that testifies to Christ. And we will unapologetically read the book of Kings as it points us continually to Christ. So the book of Kings is a quest for the king. And as we read through the book of Kings, we'll need to be continually looking backwards in two directions and looking forwards in two directions. The first direction we look backwards is we look backwards to the book of Deuteronomy. Because Kings is the last book in a series of books known as the Deuteronomistic History. You'll need to remember that for the test. Deuteronomistic History. And the reason it's called the Deuteronomistic History is because the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and Kings all tell the same story. They all tell the history of the people of God, and they all tell the history of the people of God not as mere facts and dates and events that happened, but they tell it as theological history. It is the history of God's people from God's point of view, and it's all viewed through the lens of the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God commands his people what they should do and what they shouldn't do, who they should be and who they shouldn't be, and all the books from Joshua through Kings give us an understanding of when the people succeeded in God's eyes and when they failed in God's eyes. And the book of Kings is specifically concerned with the kings of Israel and Israel and Judah. And each of the kings is going to get a thumbs up, a thumbs middle, or a thumbs down from the Lord based on how they have acted. And he judges them each, not by some arbitrary standard. He judges them according to what God has instructed the kings to do in the book of Deuteronomy. So the first place we look backwards is to Deuteronomy. The second place we look backwards is to God's covenant with David. Because God had made a promise to David that he would have a kingdom which would endure forever. That promise is found in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord says, Your house to David and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so we are continually looking for the eternal kingdom which God has promised to David. And we're looking for the eternal king 
that God has promised to David. David's greater son, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, were continually looking for this promised king, and he is to be a perfect king. Because in 2 Samuel 7, God also says, when he does wrong, I will punish him. And he punishes him with the rod of men, with other nations coming in. And so we're looking for a perfect king who has no reason to be punished for his own sons, for his own sins, rather. And how will we know? How will we know when a king does right or does what is wrong? Well, we'll know based on what God has instructed his kings. Again, looking back to the book of Deuteronomy. So we're looking backwards to see that God promises a perfect king who rules over a perfect kingdom. Then we look forward to two places as well. Because here's a spoiler alert. We won't find that king in the book of Kings. In fact, the book of Kings ends with the people of Judah being torn off and ripped off for their land and carted off into exile. The temple is burned to the ground. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And there is no king on the throne of Israel. And the compiler of these books, uh, church tradition says that it could have been Jeremiah that's more conjecture than provable. But the compiler of these books most likely lives in the exile and writes the books from Joshua all the way to Kings largely to answer the questions that his people would have had. Have God's promises failed? God promised David that he would have a son to always sit on his throne. Has God's promise failed? Or are the gods of Babylon or of Persia simply stronger than the God of Abraham? And the answer to these questions, which the author of Kings gives, is very clear. By no means. God has done exactly what he has promised he was going to do, and he will still keep his promise. The great king, the king of kings, is still coming. And so secondly, we look forward to Christ. Because he is the promised king. And we see in the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The king is found, but he is found not in kings, but he is found in Christ. Last week, I wanted to go outside for some reason. I don't remember why. So I was looking for my boots. And I found one of my boots right away. And I went digging through my closet to find the other one. And as I dug through my closet, I looked in the dark, and I found all kinds of other shoes. I found brown shoes. That's not right. And I found flip-flops, and those aren't right. And I found basketball shoes, and I found running shoes, which I should use more as I get ready for the past 5K. I found another basketball shoe, and then I found a boot. But it's not the right match, so that wasn't right. Then I found the match for that boot, and I couldn't find my boot anywhere. Now, I knew it had to be somewhere, but it wasn't where I was looking for it. That's kind of the feeling we're going to have as we go through Kings. We know that the king promised David is out there somewhere, but he's not here. We know that he has to be out there, but we're ultimately going to find ourselves to be dissatisfied as we read through Kings. But it's dissatisfaction with a purpose. The purpose is to show us just how great of a king Jesus is. We might appreciate him more 
and love him more for having found our time in kings and found the king in Christ. Now, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves and a lot about the history of God's people here. But ultimately, we will see the point of kings fulfilled only when we recognize that it points us someplace else. Now, I eventually found my other boot. Eventually found it, it was downstairs in the laundry room because my son Drew likes to take my shoes and throw them down the laundry chute. And so I found it in the laundry room, in a different room, a different place than I was looking. That's how it will be with this king. We'll find him in a different place than we've been looking. Not in Kings, but in Matthew. Not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. Not in Solomon, but in Christ. So the story begins with David. David is old and cold, and they bring in this young, beautiful woman to keep him warm. And this seems like, this seems like it's more scandalous than it probably is. Medical writers from the ancient world attest that this is actually a, a fairly common practice, that when someone is, is too cold to keep warm themselves, they'll find someone to use body heat to try to warm them up. Anyways, while David is old and cold and on his deathbed, we recognize that a crisis arises because David's miserable parenting rears its ugly head again. And into this, into this situation where David is on his deathbed, uprises Adonijah, this fourth-born son of David. And Adonijah decides this is his opportune moment to become king of the people of Israel. Now, we, we know the story of some of the sons of David. And although Adonijah is the fourth-born son, he's also the oldest remaining son, which tells us something about the pain and the imperfect nature of David's life. We don't know why Caleb, one of his oldest sons, died, but we know well the story of Amnon, who raped his half-sister Tamar and then was murdered by his brother Absalom. Then we know that Absalom led a rebellion against David, and he was himself, in turn, killed by Joab. It's not one big happy family, is it? So the next remaining oldest son is Adonijah, and Adonijah picks this time to be king. After all, his, his father David is old, and he's an out-of-the-loop, impotent king, and so he's the oldest remaining son. Why not claim the throne for yourself? But the issue is, as we see in verse 17, that David hadn't chosen Adonijah to be king. David had promised that Solomon was going to be king after him. Nevertheless, Adonijah decides he's going to make himself king, so he gathers together military officials and religious officials. He invites all the, all the officials in David's court, and then he invites all the king's sons. And this is very significant because as these sons walk through the doorway into Adonijah's party, it's like they're holding up their right hand and saying, I resign all claims to the throne of my father David. And I agree that Adonijah is the rightful heir to David. And so all the king's sons are there. It seems like the whole kingdom is agreeing that Adonijah should be king, except he didn't invite Solomon. Because Adonijah knew good and well that Solomon was David's choice to be king. And as soon as Adonijah has the throne, Solomon, as they say, is dead meat, because he's a threat. Times of transition are dangerous times, aren't they? And that's true whether it be in the kingdom or in the church. 
Because when you have a time of transition, you have a sort of an authority or a power or a leadership vacuum. And oftentimes, people throw themselves into that vacuum who have no right becoming influential people within either a kingdom or a church. I've interviewed with a number of churches in my time, and the, the, the dynamics in the search committee are always very interesting to watch. And, and one or two times, I've sat there, and on the inside, you know, you're saying one thing outside. On the inside, you're thinking to yourself, this is such an unhealthy situation. You're just watching people arm wrestle as they, as they wrestle across the table. You can see that this person wanted to be on the committee for this reason, and this person wanted to be on the committee for this reason. Thankfully, not at this church. I'm not calling anybody from the search committee out. But we see, and, and they're trying to wrestle over the future of the church by getting somebody who's going to fit their wishes. And you think to yourself, as I think to myself, only someone who's naive, desperate, or strongly called would come here. And we see there's a power vacuum and a time of transition. And the kingdom of Israel, David's kingdom, teeters on the edge of chaos. A ruthless and foolish son has thrust himself forward in a, in a lustful quest for power. And he appears to have it. He has priests. He has an army. He has all the king's sons and all the king's men, as they say. And who will stop him? Certainly not the near-dead king, right? Even the Lord throughout this entire scene stays in the background, never once acting overtly in any way to stop Adonijah's coup from being successful. But the prophet Nathan has a knack for being in exactly the right place in exactly the right time, and this is no exception. Nathan finds out about Adonijah's party, and he goes to Bathsheba, and together they hatch a plot to put the rightful heir to the throne on the throne and to get David to endorse Solomon as his heir before it's too late. And they're joined in this plot by Zadok, who's the high priest, and Benaiah, who's the leader of David's professional soldiers and so they hatch this plan and Bathsheba goes in first and she tells David exactly what's happening. Now imagine being king and being so out of the loop, so unaware of even a crucial matter of state like this that you have to be informed of it by your wife. And then Nathan comes in and says exactly the same thing. So now what? The kingdom hangs in the balance. Chaos is just one step away from breaking out. An unfit son of David has claimed the throne of David. God had promised to David that his son who reigned after him would build the temple. Can this foolish son be the one? It seems even like the promise of God hangs in the balance. And will this near-dead, old and cold king muster his strength just one more time to save his kingdom and save his promise from disaster. God's story does not lack in drama. In drama. Amen? So what will happen next? Well, David was a miserable father. And he was an adulterer. And he was a murderer. But he had the two things that matter most. He had a promise from God, and he had faith in that promise. 
And David recognizes in an instant that this is not the way it's meant to be. He recognizes this promise that he cherishes from God seems to hang by a thread. And so he leaps into action just one last time. And he calls in Nathan the prophet, and he calls in Bathsheba, and he calls in Zadok and Benaiah, and he says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take Solomon, you're going to put him on my mule, you're going to call the trumpeters, they're going to come, you're going to go down to Gihon, you're going to march up to the city, you're going to put him on my throne, you're going to have everybody shout out, long live King Solomon. So they do exactly that. They grab Solomon, they put him on the mule, they take him to Gihon, they bring him up into Jerusalem, they put him on, they put him on David's throne, and everybody is shouting, long live King Solomon. It works exactly as David says it's going to. The city is so loud, the trumpets blare so loudly, and all the ground even begins to shake that Adonijah's party, which is just about to break up anyways, begins to hear the noise, and they say, what in the world is going on? They hope it's good news. They hope the people are so excited that Adonijah has made himself king that they've all begun shouting and and partying without even being told the news by Adonijah himself. But in runs Jonathan, and they say, good news, right? He says, no, at least not for you. And as they say, the party's over. And all of Adonijah's partiers slip out to go become suddenly loyal subjects of King Solomon. And Adonijah runs, grabs hold of the altars, and has some kind of a plea bargain with Solomon. And the kingdom, at the end of the day, is in Solomon's hands. What do we make of all this? How do we see this in a way that is more than just a story, but a way that actually matters for us? Beyond just, if we can say just, beyond just moving God's promise to David one generation forward. What does this matter for us? I think the first thing we can recognize very clearly from this passage is that parenting matters. Parenting matters. It's no surprise. Solomon saw three of his older brothers die because of their foolishness, their sinfulness, and their lack of self-control. He saw Amnon, Absalom, and soon Adonijah die. And then he writes the Proverbs. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Solomon saw with his own eyes his own father's utter failure to do exactly that. And he knew the disaster that comes when covenant children are not trained and disciplined and discipled and taught self-control, and taught wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And he writes again in the Proverbs, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. David is explicitly said to have spared the rod from his sons. And three of them, of the first four, died as a direct result of David's failure. Do we dare think that we are different than the great king? Do we dare think that our parenting, no matter how faithful or unfaithful, is of little consequence? And do we think that somehow our children will just learn discipline by osmosis, as if they'll just soak up self-control and the fear of the Lord as if it comes natural? That's not how it works. 
We must be faithful, and we must be diligent, and we must teach and train and disciple and discipline and love our children. We must not be lazy and negligent, and we shouldn't be scared of our children. We are instructed to cause them to fear God, not to be afraid of them and how they will react when we teach them to fear God. We need to be faithful to our baptismal vows. I say it when you're standing right here. This is not a game. This is life and death, love and hatred. If you love your children, you'll be faithful. If you hate them, you will fail them. You won't feel hate inside. You'll feel warm and fuzzy. But in God's eyes, David hated his sons. And in God's eyes, do we love or do we hate our children? Do we teach them and do we train them? Do we read the scriptures to them and teach them to read? Do we pray with them? Do we pray for them? Are we regular in worship? Do we teach them what wisdom looks like? Do we genuinely care about our children and whether or not they have discipline, are discipled, have self-control, love, and fear the Lord? Be diligent. Do it for your children. Do it for yourself. Do it for the church, and do it for the glory of God. David was a great king, but he was a miserable father. We have a great king. Don't be a miserable father. Put down your phone, turn off the computer, sell the Xbox, come home on time from work, and put in the hard work that it takes to raise godly covenant children. Second. God will keep his promise. We often want God to do things the easy way, don't we? We think to ourselves, you know, it would have been easier because there was Adonijah and all the rest of the king's sons. Anyone who had a claim to the throne was all there in one place and all these opponents to Solomon were there. You know, all it would have taken is one really well-timed lightning bolt and they'd have all been gone. Problem over, right? Or just send a prophet like Elijah to call down fire from heaven and wipe them all out. But that's not really how God usually works, is it? But God usually works with his people. In this case, David is king, Nathan is prophet, Zadok is priest, Benaiah and, and Bathsheba his servant. He uses them to move the promise just one generation forward while he himself really stays in the background we think things should be easier for us or at least could be easier for us too it'd be easier for my neighbors to come to know Jesus if he would just send them an angel and have this angel appear in the middle of the night in their room and say wake up Jesus is the savior believe I mean wouldn't that be easier I wouldn't have to have that awkward conversation with my neighbor about inviting them to church or about how they are sinners who need a Savior. I mean, if God would just send an angel to them, that would be way easier. And who wouldn't believe the angel after all, right? Or wouldn't it be easier to be parents if God would just take the ants out of the kids' pants for us, make them perfectly obedient already? But that's not how it works. God chooses to use us. He calls us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. 
and He calls us to be faithful. God will keep His promises like He did here. And we need to be ready and faithful to be used by Him for that purpose. In this instance, there were no lightning bolts, no fire from heaven, just a king who responded lightning quick and with a fiery zeal to the threat to the promise and with a deep, profound love for God. We need to have the same zeal and respond just as quickly to God's promise and to his instruction. Third, things are not always as they seem. It seemed, in this case, like Adonijah was king. And it seemed as though anyone who wanted to save their life was going to be very quickly very good friends with Adonijah. And it seemed like David was out of it. It seemed like his wishes and his desires and who he had chosen to be on the throne after him didn't matter at all because he was on his deathbed. He didn't even know what Adonijah was doing. It seemed like Solomon was dead meat. But at the end of the story, Solomon is on the throne. And Adonijah is clinging to the horns of the altar, begging for his life. You know, it seemed when Christ was on the cross that he had lost, that God had lost, that righteousness had lost. But in reality, at the cross, God wins his greatest victory over sin. And it seemed when Jesus was lying in the darkness of the tomb, it seemed like death had won, like darkness had won. But the reality is that he was just one day from breaking forth with the most glorious light in resurrection power that can possibly be. And it seemed when Paul was going from house to house to house, dragging church leaders and church members in the infancy of the church off and throwing them into prison or having them put to death, it seemed like the church was going to die in its infancy. But God was just very soon going to change Paul from the church's greatest opponent to its greatest missionary. Things are not always as they seem. It may seem as though you have impossible situations in your life. Perhaps a wayward or unrepentant child. Perhaps a perpetual issue in your family or marital struggles. Maybe it's a, a chronic sin you just can't seem to shake. You want to shake it. At least in your spirit you want to shake it, but your flesh just will not shake it. Or maybe it, it's a, a loved one or a neighbor or a friend or a family member that you would you just desire above all things that they would come to know Christ. No matter how many times you say it, no matter how gracious you try to be, it just seems like it falls on deaf ears. Or maybe you look around the world and you see cultural decay and you see the persecution of the church and you say, it just seems impossible to me that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But remember what Jesus says. He says, with God, all things are possible. Just because something seems to be impossible doesn't mean that we ought to give in or to give up. Things are not always as they seem. We remember 
that it seemed like Adonijah was going to be king. But Solomon was king. And that the Pharisees and the Sadducees themselves made themselves opponents of Christ. And it seemed as though they had won. And it seemed as though darkness would win again and again and again. But God wins. At the end of the story, God wins. No matter how impossible it may seem. Finally, finally and ultimately, we, we must recognize that Jesus is the great king. And God will put him on his throne. You know, what Adonijah and Joab and Abiathar all had in common is that they were all three second fiddle. Adonijah was the son that David didn't want to be king. Joab was the general who had been replaced by Benaiah as David's chief general. And Abiathar was priest, but he wasn't the high priest. And they conspired together to usurp, because they coveted the top positions in the kingdom, to usurp the kingdom and the throne for themselves. And it seemed as though they were successful. But at the end of the day, Solomon was king. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans, they all conspired together to kill Jesus rather than bow the knee to Jesus. But at the end of the day, Christ is king. And there is no one who can tear Christ off the king of God's kingdom. Not now and not ever. And I think we see Jesus very clearly foreshadowed in two places in this passage. They both come from people in their reaction to David's desire and his commands to put Solomon on the throne. The first comes from Bathsheba. When David tells her his intentions, she falls down before the king and she says, May my lord King David live forever. There's some irony there, right? Because this whole situation is happening because David's going to die. Right? The whole situation, the reason, the reason that Abijah or Adonijah and, and Solomon are having this battle over who's going to be king is because David's going to die. If David was going to live forever, there wouldn't need to be a conversation about who's going to be king. Why would Bathsheba say, may my lord the king live forever? It's because she speaks better than she knows. God has put in the hearts of his people a desire for a king who will indeed live forever. David wasn't that king. Jesus is the king who lives forever. The second place is Benaiah, the general in David's army. When he finds out what David's commands are, he says, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my Lord the king, so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater and the throne of my Lord King David. Benaiah seems to be aware of God's covenant promise to David that there would be a greater king. And Benaiah is looking for a king who excels and exceeds David in every way. And he's hoping that it's Solomon. He's hoping that Solomon will be an even greater king than David. And Solomon was greater than David in many ways, but not the ways that matter most. He was not more righteous. He was not more faithful, and he was certainly not more holy than David. Benaiah was right to look for a greater king, but we must look for a king even greater than Solomon. And the greatest king to whom we can look is Christ. 
Jesus says that himself. He says in Matthew 12, 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The quest for the great king begins for us here in the book of Kings. And it ends when we come to the king of kings in faith. And by God's grace, he brings us even now to bow our knees before Christ and to say together with those crowds before our great king, long live the king. Let's pray. King Jesus, we bow our knees. We join our voices. Long live the king. You are the one greater than Solomon. You are the one greater than David. You have a king that expands not from Egypt to the Euphrates. You have a kingdom that expands across the entirety of the earth. And you will have citizens in your kingdom from every tribe. And one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. And by your grace, you have caused us to say you are Lord even before we are made to say it. But you have put into our hearts to want to say it. And so we confess and we rejoice that you are King ascended to the right hand of the Father, reigning over all things, the most glorious one. We pray that we would be your faithful subjects, that we would serve you diligently. Those of us who are parents would not fail as David failed, but that we would be faithful, that we would have the delight of seeing our children grow to love you. We know that, that no amount of parenting can guarantee any kind of a result. And we know that you are the one who changes hearts. We don't prop ourselves up as those who are able to do whatever we desire. But we recognize that we are those whom you have called to be faithful, to be diligent, and that you so often use parents to teach and to train and to lead children to Christ. And so we pray as well that you would help us to see that things are not always as they seem. The hard-hearted neighbor may perhaps have had his heart tilled for the seed of the gospel even overnight. We pray that you would help us to see even situations that seem to be impossible, to put ourselves forward in them in obedience to your command. And as you are the king of all the earth, we pray that as your subjects, we would serve you, but you have made us more than just subjects. You have made us sons 
and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. And so we pray that you would fill us with the joy that belongs to those who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God belongs to us by your grace, through faith in Christ who is our great King. We pray. We pray in your name, great King. Amen.